0: Are you ready for God's word today, church? Yeah. Me too. Me too. Well, we are on week five of our journey through this sermon series that we're calling Messy. Say messy out loud. Messy. messy. Because being a Jesus community is Messy. And what we're learning as we study the Sermon on the Mount is that if you really follow the way of Jesus, it is straight messy. In fact, we've been saying this over and over again. The way of Jesus is messy, but so worth it. And so we're going on this long, slow journey through the Sermon on the Mount to learn more clearly what exactly Jesus himself said about following the way of Jesus. And so let's do a super quick recap of where we've been. Week one, we started at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, talking about what is commonly known as the Beatitudes. And we talked about how Jesus is really just teaching us kingdom theology. He's introducing his followers to the way of God's upside-down kingdom. And then week two, we stayed on the same verses... And we reminded ourselves that maybe the best posture to take is to stop thinking about being blessed and instead focus on being a blessing. We talked about how the kingdom of God, all the goodness of God, is here now on earth through the people of God, faithfully following the way of Jesus. So together, we lean into the formation of of the messy way of Jesus, that we might bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven right here, right now. And then the third week, we moved on and we talked about the salt and the light and we recognized that Jesus really just called ordinary people to live ordinary lives transformed and empowered by an extraordinary God. And I can say yes to that. How about you? Amen? That week we also talked about how internal transformation is more important than external expectations. And Jesus just consistently in the Sermon on the Mount is reminding us that he cares deeply about the condition of our hearts. And then last week was a doozy was working on me all week. Can I get an amen? Y'all don't want to admit it, but I know it's true. We talked about how anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. No matter how many times we want to just sneak it into that list in Galatians 5, anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. We talked about how the way we speak about people matters. I was thinking this week I shared uh, with you guys Jokingly, but it's so not a joke that that driving is really the best way that we practice extending grace to other people. Right? Driving is one of the ways that we regularly, over and over and over again, can love our enemies. How many of y'all had opportunities to practice that this week? Yes. And you know, Pastor Mark and I—we bought a house, you know, and we moved in, and we were excited. And I was reminded of another tool of God that works on my anger. You want to know what it is? The garden hose. Hate them. Don't you know, when you try to roll one of them crusty old garden hoses up, it'd be fighting you the whole way? Any testimonies of you losing your cool on a garden hose? So I just decided I'm done with them. I am only buying, write this down, Mark Hall, I am only buying the as-seen-on-TV ones that like, and then, it's all I'm getting, because they do not fight me like the other ones. I don't care if it breaks in a year. It will save my sanctification. I heard that, Amen. We talked about Christ's call to love our enemies, those everyday ones, and the far away. We talked about how if we truly love our enemies, revenge is not an option. Grace is our only option. And so this concept that Jesus is teaching about love for enemies is really this massive heart shift That changes our actions. And the crazy thing about what Jesus teaches about love for enemies is that if we really love our enemies, we start making decisions for their good. And that's just next level. But that is the messy way of our King Jesus. So that catches us up to where we are this week, and I just have to remind me, oh, oh no. Pastor Mark, did you move my prop? Oh, oh, praise God. It's going to blow my whole sermon. We have to go into this being reminded of God's grace. And so I want to pull out, we have another hard word. Jesus was just preaching straight fire in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we have to be reminded again that God's grace covers us like an umbrella. And umbrellas were never intended so that we could stand still and just chill out in the rain, right? They were created and designed so that we could get from point A to point B. And so God's grace covers us as we journey through this messy life, going from our starting point to our end goal, which is looking more like King Jesus every day. And as we fail and fall short, God's grace covers us. But we keep moving. Amen, church? We keep pursuing God's holy call for our lives. And so as we go to God's word today, I just want you to remember that every single one of us is on our journey covered by this grace umbrella. If you receive that today, say amen. amen. All right. Nobody move this. I'm going to need it again. I'm just kidding. You, you can move it. All right, so we're going to go to God's word in Matthew 5, and we're going to read verses 27 through 37. So I just invite you to stand in honor of reading God's word this morning. And I just want to say out loud before we read this text, we committed to verse by verse, my friends. So here we are. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. (laughs) Hear the word of our Lord, church. You have heard the commandment that says, you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say, by heaven, Because heaven is God's throne. And do not say, by the earth. Because the earth is his footstool. And do not say, by Jerusalem. For Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say, by my head. For you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes I will, or no I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. The strong word of our Lord. You can be seated. All right! Let me start out by saying, I just want to throw a few things out as we get started, just so that, like, we're on some equal playing field here. Pastor Mark and I both have divorce in our family histories. So we receive this as a strong word, too. Many of you have been touched and impacted by divorce, and so I I want you to know, it'll take us a moment to get there, but I think this is a grace-filled word from our Lord that is meant to be freeing. So as we kind of unpack, I want to also say that there's gender-specific language used, but it's universally applicable. It's being written from some cultural stereotypes, men and women, but it, it goes both ways and flows either direction. So let's dive in and unpack this. First, I'm going to establish a mental picture for us as we begin to understand what Jesus is doing as he's taking the law that was established in the Old Testament and he's doing teaching on it. So uh, your first point in your notes, if you're following along on the Bible app, is this. Guardrails are good. Heart transformation is better. Guardrails are good but heart transformation is better i've got a picture from the book we're reading together what if jesus was serious and i'm going to ask you to just leave it up there as we talk and i want this to kind of be a mental picture so guardrails you know you're going down a street you got the guardrails to kind of let you know don't go over the edge so take this in guardrails are good But becoming a driver who does not need them is better. So as we're approaching God's word, we can think of guardrails like the law. The black and white things, or black and white so we think, that scripture tells us are good and bad. And then Jesus begins to take these guardrails and take them deeper to this place in our heart where we no longer need said guardrails. So, Jesus here is talking about a marriage guardrail. So, think about this with us, with me. He says, Do not commit adultery, which is a reference to the seventh commandment in the Ten Commandments. And so, he's pulling out a very specific law. The beauty of what Jesus is talking about here is it's really all about honoring the covenant of marriage. And it's important to remember that God is almost always talking in communal or corporate lingo. And this principle, this guardrail, if you will, about marriage was a community honoring marriage which created social stability and growth. Now, let's think about the concept of divorce for a moment. When you think about divorce, it doesn't just affect that family, right? Man, you you, hear jokes about who gets the friends after the divorce and who gets the church after divorce, and it's messy, right? Right? And so God's compelling call about the marriage covenant is not just about the good of that marriage and that family, but God is concerned about the social construct as well. That strong marriages lead to strong, faithful, thriving communities. And so we have to think in that communal concept. So this call that Jesus is making to be faithful to your marriage, it kept the entire Israelite community on a path toward flourishing. But let's talk about guardrails for a minute. Here's the limitation. Guardrails keep us from driving off a cliff. Thank you, Jesus. Or what is it? R dot? ADOT, Arkansas Department of Transportation, thank you for those guardrails. But those guardrails don't teach us to drive like, fill in the blank, insert the name of the most skilled driver you know. I had to Google some so that I could be relatable. Uh, Mario Andretti? Jeff Gordon? Okay, yeah, I don't know what you said, but yes, thank you. Richard Petty? I think they're good drivers. They probably don't need guardrails. And so we use this imagery to remind us that at some point we must grow beyond detailed awareness of the edge of the guardrails and focus more on the way of Jesus. See, this concept of do not commit adultery is a guardrail. Like it's saying, at the very least, don't be unfaithful, right? But God's heart really for marriage and for families and for communities is a thriving that doesn't even need said guardrails. But that begs that the community is together aiming to follow the way of Jesus. So guardrails really would be unnecessary if we would just simply follow the way of Jesus. So I think Jesus is calling us all throughout the Sermon on the Mount to a focus shift. Instead of how close to the guardrail can I get, Our perspective becomes, how close to Jesus can I get? And so as we've seen through this whole Sermon on the Mount, Christ's deep concern for our heart, we're reminded that Jesus isn't merely interested in good behavior. Jesus isn't merely interested in good behavior. His heart for us is that we would be good people. That to our core, he would have control of our hearts. To where at our core, we are good as he made us to be. Amen? And that is the transforming power of Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves this. Am I simply avoiding a wreck Or am I pursuing Jesus? Am I simply avoiding a wreck in life by just being super aware of the rules and the guardrails and what will keep me from flying off the cliff? Or am I truly pursuing the way of Jesus with my whole heart? And I think that second option is the way to live. Jesus is again more concerned with our hearts, He knows that the result of a transformed heart is way more beautiful and impactful than an external rule follower with a corrupt heart. I don't know about you. I want the heart transformation. So heart transformation is our goal on this together journey as we follow the way of Jesus. So as we're talking today, I just invite you to think about those guardrails. That humanity needs these obnoxious guardrails that keep us from flying off cliffs. But the way of Jesus is a way that calls us to follow in such a way that the guardrails aren't even necessary. And heart transformation is what leads to that. Okay, so we're going to continue on focusing on those verses that we've read, and boy, it just gets more and more fun. The next note in your notes is this, according to Jesus, lust is a choice. According to Jesus, lust is a choice. Now, this really stands in contrast with culture today. Really, uh, we would love to blame lots of things other than choice, right? Right? We blame the media, we blame women, and we blame men. We basically blame everybody. And we, there's rarely a call to personal ownership in the concept. But Jesus here, the words he's using are indicating choice. So quick Greek lesson the Greek word here for lust means to desire greatly, to long for. I can remember when I was pregnant, and I would get, y'all, I hated McDonald's pre-pregnancy. When I got pregnant, I could literally not eat enough double cheeseburgers. And I mean, that is the closest thing to the, I, I feel like, like I had lust in my heart for a double cheeseburger. I was intent upon getting me some double cheeseburger. You know what I'm saying? And one Sunday, bless their hearts, at my old church, I literally, the craving was so strong, I stopped mid-sermon and said, oh my word, I need a double cheeseburger. And somebody got me one. So perks of being a pregnant pastor. So as we look at this Greek word, we learn that there's a difference between acknowledging the beauty of God's creation and and longing for someone other than your spouse. It is something that we intend. It is something that's so compelling to us that it's drawing us to act. Now there's a warning here in this. That if we choose frequently enough to linger on these things that compel us, it can become a compulsive response that bypasses our conscious will. But it doesn't begin that way. God created people to be beautiful. And so we have to use the Holy Spirit to help us discern Where is it leaning into the intent of that Greek word for lust? This longing for with the intent of acting upon. Now, do not hear that as something that gets us off the hook in the category of lust. Christ is actually calling us to be very aware of our hearts. Again, choosing to entertain this lust that Jesus refers to eventually desensitizes us to the dangers of it all together. My past, before I became a, pra- a pastor, I was a counselor. And with young kids, we would talk about thought stopping. And so when they would have, you know, an, an impulse in school to like throw something at somebody, we would talk about thought stopping. And I just think about often in our journey with Jesus, we need some Holy Spirit empowered thought stopping. And you can put anything in in replacement, take lust if lust isn't your temptation, whatever it is. Maybe let's talk about gluttony and double cheeseburgers. But whatever it is, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can acknowledge a thought and then allow the Holy Spirit to take that in a healthy direction rather than an unhealthy direction. And that's where we need discernment. Jesus says, deal with it at the heart level. Don't just avoid it until you've let what's in your heart show up in your actions. And so I think in Jesus's boldness to just call out lust, right? He says, man, if you even look at a man or woman lustfully, you've, you've already committed the crime. Again, I think Jesus sends this message that when we follow the way of Jesus, we take sin seriously, Let's read verses 29 through 30 again. Jesus said this, So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. I found it really interesting in my studies there were really two interpretations, two scholarly interpretations of those two verses. The first is like deadly serious where where Jesus is like no really, like cut your hand off. Take take care of it. And this would be like Oswald Chambers. This was his conviction about these verses, stern discipline would be that approach. The second approach is this. uh, As Dallas Willard said, rabbinical sarcasm. And if you take Dallas Willard's approach, you might think that there Jesus is pointing out the absurdity of strictly focusing on external law keeping. I love this quote from Dallas Willard. He said, if we all took this literally, we would roll into heaven a mutilated stump. You, You can laugh now. It's okay. The mutilated stump could still have a wicked heart. Eliminating body parts will not change that. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm in this place where I'm like, was Jesus being deadly serious or was he being sarcastic? I wonder if it's a little bit of both. Let me read a quote from the book, What If Jesus Was Serious. Sky Jitani said this, If our hearts are transformed, as Willard says is necessary, the transformation will be manifested in new behaviors, including the practice of stern discipline, as Chambers writes, in the avoidance of sin. What we, what we must avoid is the error of thinking holiness is either an external or an internal reality. It must transform both our intent and our our action. So again, I just keep being drawn back to this place, church, where Jesus is compelling us to pay attention to the condition of our hearts in every way. What is our heart longing for? What is our heart looking for? And how are we meeting those longings in our hearts? Because that leads to the actions we choose. So, according to Jesus, lust is a choice. And really, you can change out lust with any other sinful behavior. And we're reminded of our need for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, let's continue on through Jesus' teaching. And I'm just going to say this boldly, and then we're going to unpack, okay? God's ideal design does not include divorce. Divorce. God's ideal design for his beloved humanity does not include divorce. Now let me say again, Mark and I both have divorce in our family histories. And so I stand here before you reading God's word, receiving the impact with you. But let's get to some context. Let's get to some context about Jesus' teaching On divorce because he's pretty strict. But the context is important. In that culture, men could freely divorce women for any reason. Any reason. You burn dinner, I'm done. You no longer pleased your husband, someone else was more attractive. In that culture, women had zero rights And divorce nearly ruined their reputation in that society. A divorced woman in that culture really had three choices. The first was to live with an angry family member. The second was to marry a man who treated her as damaged goods. The third was to become a prostitute. Lovely options, don't you think? So in that culture, being a divorced woman was next to a curse. It was probably one of the worst things that you could be labeled. So women often lived in fear that they could be left for any reason. So it's into that context that Jesus is teaching. And the beauty of this teaching is that God is making some really protective moves over women. He's giving them a place of dignity that they aren't just goods to be toyed with as man pleased. So that's important for us to understand. If this topic is important or difficult for you, I would encourage you to look up Dallas Willard, his book Divine Conspiracy. In chapter 5, he talks a lot about this concept of divorce and what Christ teaches. I think it would be meaningful if you want more reading. But let's look at another place in the New Testament where Jesus teaches on divorce. We're going to go to Matthew 19, verses 7 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord, church. Then why did Moses say in the law... So this is the disciples asking Jesus. Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Listen to this, church. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. This is the best part. Jesus' disciples then said to him, if this is the case, it is better not to marry. That's how I picture it in my head. So Jesus' teaching on divorce so robbed men of their fun that their response here was, if that's how things are, it's better not to marry at all. What good heart postures, right? Solid. But notice what it said in verse 8. Jesus said... Divorce was a concession to hard hearts. I think that's really important. Again, we're confronted with the issue of the heart. Let's unpack and chew on this for a second. I don't know about you, but I have seen God heal messy marriages. Can I get an amen? I have seen God heal marriages after infidelity. And you know what else? I have seen beautiful marriages after divorce. And so I wonder here if adultery isn't really even what Jesus is focusing on. Here's what I mean by that. I want to read a quote from that Dallas Willard chapter that I was recommending in Divine Conspiracy. He said this, Misunderstanding this point, some people even today think that where there is adultery, divorce is required by the biblical teachings, but it is not. Rather, hear this, rather it is the hardness of the human heart that Jesus cites as grounds for permitting divorce in the case of adultery. In other words, the ultimate grounds for divorce is human meanness man some of us need to hear that and receive it and let it nourish our wounds the ultimate grounds for divorce is human meanness now church this is where i land today if i ever stand before you and act like i know all things and i have it all figured out somebody please come talk to me because i never want that to be my posture the nuances of this teaching by Jesus are hard. But here's what I walk away confident of. Let me list a few things. Divorce is not God's ideal for us. I think even those of us who have lived through it and have beautiful marriages would say, yeah, it was messy. Probably not God's ideal. Another thing I know to be true is that Jesus teaches us that the marriage covenant is serious, shouldn't be taken lightly, and it should be deeply cherished. Another thing I think we can be confident in is that hard human hearts are what make divorce an option. Hard human hearts are what make divorce an option. And church, I I feel like If King Jesus were among us, he would want some of us to hear this too. Hard hearts may make divorce necessary to avoid greater harm. Did you hear that? The hardness of human hearts may deem divorce necessary because abuse in any form is also not a part of God's design. And so yet again, Jesus says, pay attention to your hearts. In the words of Dallas Willard, again, I'm a fan if you haven't read any of his works. He said, kingdom hearts are not hard. And so, the flip side, the beautiful side of that, is that when a heart is tender and responsive to King Jesus, the sky is the limit. Beautiful healing and restoration is within our grasp. Hard human hearts. So, God is deeply concerned about our heart condition. I think we should pause and notice that there's no mistake that Jesus' teaching on divorce is in the midst of his teachings on anger, contempt, and obsessive desire. Perhaps if we dealt with our anger, our contempt, and our obsessive desire, how many divorces could be avoided, amen? Amen. So I I just feel compelled to say this. If you're in this room and you are divorced because of the hardness of another person's heart, God smiles upon you. You are greatly loved by the Father. If you're in this room and you're divorced because of the hardness of your own heart, God smiles upon you, and you are greatly loved by the Father. And even hard hearts are not beyond the work of King Jesus. Restoration is possible. And I think we can all say that we're thankful that God takes what Satan means to harm us, and he uses it for good. I'm thankful for that. Boy howdy. I'm tired. Y'all doing okay out there? We've got a few more verses to cover. Woo! Sorry, guys. This last piece is important that Jesus teaches if we look at verses thirty-three through thirty-seven. Honestly, it ties into these conversations about faithfulness and the marriage covenant and divorce and and all these things we've been talking about. But in your notes is this, in God's kingdom, verbal integrity matters. In God's kingdom, verbal integrity matters matters. There are two two keys to this. Think about when we make verbal vows. One, often our vows are really verbal manipulation. Don't believe you? Don't believe me? Let me just throw myself under the bus. How many times as a teenager was I like, Mom, I promise on a stack of Bibles a mile high, I won't. Why was I saying that? Because I had lost their trust. You know what I'm saying? I was trying to manipulate my mom by saying all the right things to finally get what I wanted. Not you? Okay. Just me. It's fine. So often our verbal vows are are really just us doing verbal manipulation and gymnastics to try to get what we want. The other thing that's important to note about vows is that in the way of Jesus, our words need to be trusted. The church has learned this the hard way. In the way of King Jesus, our, our words need to be trusted. They need to know that the people of God do what they say. The, the, the world needs to know that about the church. And that trust is gained in big things and in the small things. So if we're tempted to add, I swear by my mama's grave, to a statement I think we have to pause and ask ourselves, what's our heart intent? Am I just trying real hard to get what I want? Therefore, I'm being manipulative? Jesus says, my people don't even need to make such statements. Just say yes or no. Leave it at that. In a world where a lot of words are empty, and church, let's be real, let's be humble and honest, In a world where the Church, our words have been empty and sometimes dishonest, it's so important that we live into verbal integrity and mean what we say and do what we say and be who we say we are, because verbal integrity matters. So Jesus' people recognize the value of giving our word. Man, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as we prepare for a time of reflection. I woke up this morning and was just like, why me, Lord? Why? Can't we just skip these verses? But again, I feel like the way of Jesus compels us to look again at our hearts, that God's desire is to take our hearts and mold them and shape them and really create a goodness in us that transforms the very being of ourselves. So, heart transformation, as we follow the way of Jesus, as we're on this messy journey together, heart transformation is our ultimate goal. And so, as we go into a time of reflection, I wonder if these things aren't something that Christ would compel us to think on. Am I riding the guardrails in life? Am I riding the guardrails in life, just thinking about what I can do to get by? Am I entertained by the things that Christ, in fact, died for? Am I content with a hard heart? Maybe you're still letting divorce create shame in your life. Mm, that's not of God. God. Maybe today, I need to be reminded that God has called me to cultivate a life of integrity where my word is trustworthy. I don't know what you need from that today. My prayer has been that God's word would be restorative and healing today. And what I know to be true that God's word tells us that God can take stony, stubborn hearts and replace them with tender, responsive hearts to the way of King Jesus. That is where I want to be. That is who I want to be. It's the path I want to be on. And I think it's from that posture that we are able to love our enemies that we are able to stay relentlessly faithful in our commitments, in our marriages, that we're able to avoid the sin that so easily entangles us and we're able to walk the way of Jesus faithfully. So as the worship team leads us into a time of worship and reflection, the altars are open as a place to surrender and lay your burdens down. And I'm going to make myself available for anointing. If anyone needs healing of any kind, I would be honored to anoint you with oil and pray over you today. But let's take five, ten minutes to worship the King and seek that heart transformation that the Spirit of the Living God has for us. Would you stand with me? Oh, God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you just for the boldness that Jesus spoke. God, we thank you that that your grace covers us as we journey through life. And that you make this transformation possible. It's not something we have to labor after but it's your spirit at work in us and so god we just submit ourselves to that work we humble our hearts that you might have your way in us come and speak to us lord it's in the mighty powerful name of jesus i pray